new episode of Black Future Doctor, a podcast dedicated to showcasing the experiences of Black doctoral students in the UK. I'm Nina, I'm a psychology PhD student at the University of Bath and I'm your host. And today I have with me Sigourney Bell, who's studying for a PhD in Oncology at Cambridge University. Hi Sigourney, thank you so much for being with me today. No problem, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. It's brilliant to have you. So first, can you tell me a bit more about yourself and the subject of your PhD? Yeah, sure. So I am a second year PhD student at the University of Cambridge. I'm based at the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Institute. and My PhD is funded by Cancer Research UK. So my project is around developing new models and therapeutics for a rare type of paediatric brain tumour mm-hmm. called supratentorial ependymoma, which took me a long time to learn how to say. <laughs> but it affects quite a small population of uh, children, but currently there's no effective treatment. So those patients normally have resection surgery and radiotherapy if they're over the age of two. But other than that, there's no other real treatment. So my project aims to kind of understand how those tumours develop, at which point they develop, and then Mm -hmm. understanding what we can use in terms of developing new therapeutics and trialling them so that we can get something into the clinic to help these children. Oh, that's amazing. That's really like cutting edge research. Trying my best. (laughs) (laughs) Could you briefly explain what radiotherapy and that type of surgery you mentioned are? Yeah, sure. So um, resection surgery is basically where you try and take out as much of the tumour as possible. Mm-hmm. So normally there'll be a number of scans that patients will have, and then you'll have a bunch of neurosurgeons who will go in and try and take out as much of the tumour as possible without damaging the normal tissue. Mm-hmm. So that tends to be the surgery, just kind of getting rid of as much as possible. And then radiotherapy is around giving radiation at very specific doses over time, to try and kill the remainder of the cancer cells without hopefully not affecting the normal cells too much, which hopefully means that you'll get the remainder of the tumour dying away and then you would hope that they would go on to live a normal life after that. But usually with radiotherapy, especially in patients so young, there can be long-lasting impacts of those things. Mm. So we want to develop new treatments, which means we can start to reduce the radiotherapy or use that in combination with something else that means that we don't worry so much about the impact long term for those patients and hopefully they go on to live a completely normal life. That's brilliant. Thank you for explaining that to me. No worries. So when did you first consider pursuing a PhD and what made you interested in this topic? So I probably didn't consider a PhD until the end of my first year of my undergrad. Mm-hmm. And that was probably at the exact same point when I found out what a PhD was. So <laughs> yeah. I am the first in my family to go to university, mm-hmm. certainly the only scientist in my family. So it was always just kind of fumbling my way through and finding out information as I went along. And I had some research experience in a lab uh, at the end of my first or towards the end of my first year. Mm-hmm. And I just really enjoyed being in the lab and really enjoyed being at the forefront of research and trying to understand how things worked, why they worked the way they did. And, you know, sitting at a microscope, as lame as this sounds, and being the first person 
to have done that experiment or to see that information and to see that data and then be able to tell other people yeah I think we understand this about this or like this is the first piece of us really trying to get to grips with this was really exciting you know I I thought about how I could continue to do that so you know spoke to the lecturer I was working with and she was like I think you should do a PhD and I was like okay great how do I get one of those (laughs) Um, so you know we had a conversation about like what it required and where I could go from there and I did a year in industry during my undergrad as well so and Billy um, what did you do it in so at that point I was really really interested in neuroscience and to be honest I still am but Mm -hmm. I was working on an Alzheimer's project so developing models of Alzheimer's and testing them to see whether we could understand more about how Alzheimer's develops and then what could we use as potential targets for treatments. So that was kind of what I spent my year doing. And yeah, then I fell in love with research even more and was like, okay, I think a PhD is what I want to do. I think this is the route I want to go down. Yeah. And yeah, that kind of led me to where I am now in being in neuro-oncology. So I spent three years working at AstraZeneca in Mm -hmm. their oncology department and now I do the combination of everything I've done for the last however many years since my undergrad, which is both so neurology and oncology, which is brilliant as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, fantastic. So how did you go about navigating the application process? So it was a lot of question asking from from me in terms of my industrial placement supervisors and asking for their advice, mm-hmm. asking my lecturers for their advice. and just really going back and forth with my application. But actually, it took me quite a long time to get my PhD. I finished my undergrad in 2014 and started my PhD in 2019. So there's a whole five years in between where I was applying for PhDs and not getting anything, mm-hmm. being you know the final two for one position or the final three for two positions and not securing anything. So it was a real challenge for me yeah uh, it's gutting when you hear that it's like great that you got so far but also when you just missed out on something it's almost I feel like sometimes it's almost worse yeah definitely it, it definitely hurts a lot yeah how did you kind of keep up your motivation while you were applying over this kind of five-year period honestly a lot of it was family and then being like oh yeah you'll get it you'll get it and then being in also just working for pharmaceutical companies and having you know line managers and stuff people were like you'll get a PhD easy mm. even though I hadn't up to that point and it certainly wasn't easy but I think that constantly having that level of people telling me that they really did think that I was capable mm. really helped me to keep going even though when I was getting to the interviews and stuff that they were telling me that they didn't want me, the people who knew me well enough said that I was capable. So that was such a great support and meant that eventually, I was like, eventually in some interviews, somebody's going to see that I'm capable if the Mm. people that work with me every day think that I can do this. Exactly. It sounds like you had great support while you're going through it and yeah, both from your family and from your co-workers and I guess seniors and the people in the field you yeah. To get into. yeah yeah you know it's not always everybody there are certainly some people along my journey who, who never thought I would get here mm. but when you have the right people investing in you 
that's the thing that really drives you and, and pushes you forward. Yeah, definitely. Great. So what do you think the impact of that five year gap was on your PhD, if any, like the positives and negatives? So I suppose one of the negatives was that starting my PhD, I felt like just in terms of life and in terms of time, I was like, oh my gosh, everybody's so much younger than me and they're so much mm-hmm. better ahead than me. And, you know, when I was, when I just come out of my undergrad, I couldn't get anything. And now they're, they're already doing their PhD at the same time as I am and so on and so forth. Yeah. So there was that kind of feeling of imposter syndrome almost because it was like, I should have been able to do this five years ago. Why am I so behind? Maybe I can't do this. Maybe I shouldn't be here. So that was, that was a challenge to kind of fight. But the positives were really great in terms of, I really hit the ground running with my project, at least for the first six months until COVID came. Yeah. It was good because I was able to draw in all of my experience and the different places that I'd worked and the different techniques that I'd seen and really bring that together into planning my project and being like, okay, if this doesn't work, then we'll do this. And really kind of planning ahead, which was so helpful, which meant that actually even, especially in science, when you're looking, when you're doing experiments and things don't work, I think particularly with students who come straight from undergrad into a PhD, there's this thing of like, all your experiments must work and Mm. everything must push your science forward. Whereas I'd spent so much time on projects that was like, oh yeah, this didn't work. And then we kind of said that we're just going to bin it. So I was so used to being like, if this doesn't work, it's fine. We'll just scrap it. What's the point in plunging energy into something that doesn't work? Let's move on to the next thing. Or let's try and answer the question. If we can't answer it like this or this, then we'll just move on until there's something else we can do. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Like, no matter when you start your PhD, your unique position, there will be some benefits from starting when you start. Like, there might be some positives from starting straight out of undergrad. Mm -hmm. But I think there are also so many positives having more practical experience, you know, even if it's not directly in the field you want to go into. Yeah. you You grow, you mature, you develop new skills over that time and you can apply it to the PhD. So really, really important message there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would wholeheartedly agree. I at times have felt like, oh man, I really wish I'd been able to do this earlier, but I know that my project wouldn't be going in the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would enjoy it as much if I hadn't had all of the prior experience to kind of put into where I am now. So yeah. Exactly. Now I'm going to kind of change the topic a little bit here, but you founded Black in Cancer, which is part of the Black in X movement. Would you first be able to explain what the purpose of that movement is? Yeah, sure. So Black in X kind of started in May of last year. Obviously there was a lot going on all over the globe, mm-hmm. but one of the major things was the incident with Christian Cooper in Central Park. He was bird watching and was accused of doing something that he didn't do. Mm-hmm. And it kind of led to a movement on Twitter about how not just black birders, so bird watchers, ornithologists, etc., but just black people in STEM subjects are often either at a disadvantage mm-hmm. or how many challenges there are for black researchers 
all over the world. Mm. So the point of Black and X as a whole was just to really provide visibility and to provide a network for Black students, for just other students to be able to see what they could aspire to. So there were so many fantastic things and support and how we could really promote Black scientists moving forward. That was kind of what the purpose of Black and X is, and it, it led to just a number of organisations. So not just Black Bird as Week, but that led on to Black in Astro, Black in Chem, mm-hmm. Black in Neuro, and a whole bunch of others. So there's now a Black and X network that connects all, well, all if not majority of all of these Black in movements mm-hmm. together to really push the agenda forward. Amazing. So is that what led you to start Black in Cancer or was there anything else on your mind at the time? So there were a couple of things that kind of led me to start Black in Cancer. One of them being that I didn't actually know any other Black cancer researchers. I had not met a Black woman with a PhD until I started my own PhD. Mm-hmm. So I knew that visibility was a real issue or it had been for me. So I wanted to see other black cancer researchers. So kind of reached out on Twitter and found a few people. And then that was when I found our co- my co-founder, Dr. Henry Henderson, the third. We connected on Twitter and started chatting. And we just had a chat about our experiences as black cancer researchers. And there were two main things that we kind of had in common. One was the visibility aspect and not knowing what we were able to be and not having seen black either principal investigators or people heading up organizations that were in cancer research or were in fields that we were in but also on the flip side was being a cancer researcher is a very kind of you're in a very niche position particularly within the black community mm-hmm. in that cancer affects so many people mm. and suddenly you become the font of knowledge because somebody's like oh well you know about cancer you're like, okay, but I work on a rare children's brain tumour, <laughs> yeah, not on a really common well. like breast cancer or lung cancer or colorectal mm-hmm. cancer. So you end up being the kind of font of knowledge and you're having to like answer people's questions within the community and for a number of reasons, for inherent distrust of the of medical professionals, which mm. isn't unwarranted, amongst a number of other things. So it was really important for us to find other black researchers who were in those fields who could answer those questions who could talk about the latest research who just could answer the questions about what are standards of care for those diseases so it was really important for us to bring the community together and that's kind of what prompted it as well so and that's what our kind of two initiatives are are built on was one was the kind of visibility aspect and bringing more young black scientists into stem subjects but also informing the community about cancer as well so that we can start to decrease disparities. Yeah. And so what are the kind of things you do as part of those two initiatives? So we actually have two programmes. So one being what we call the Black and Cancer Pipeline Programme. That's to increase the number of black cancer researchers in the pipeline. So our focus isn't just for undergraduates, but it's all the way from kindergarten all the way up. Because we know that there's so many points at which students become discouraged from being in STEM subjects. And Mm -hmm. if they've got to undergrad, 
and they're doing science, they've already reached so far. And there are so many people who have dropped off in the meanwhile. So what we want to do is to build that right from the beginning to encourage young black students to see black scientists, Mm. for them to not picture a stereotype when they think of what a scientist looks like. And for them to really understand that that's a field that they can be in if that's what they're interested in that we're going to give them visibility and help them to get there in whichever way that we can so that we can give them what we didn't have. So we're building this pipeline program that kind of provides visibility for younger students and mentoring, but also once they get to undergraduate providing opportunities for them, whether that's poster talks, whether that's opportunities to present things, whether that's just having an opportunity to talk to black students who are doing PhDs or postdocs or, you know, even black supervisors that run their own labs to have that opportunity to understand what that's like. Good. So that's kind of the pipeline program. But on the flip side, we're also doing what we call the Cancer Awareness Project. Mm -hmm. So that is just about informing the black community about cancer, giving them opportunities to understand the basics around cancers that predominantly affect the black community Mm-hmm. for them to understand symptoms, for us to have an idea about how we, what treatment looks like for people to see, to be linked to black physicians and black oncologists, um, for them to get the information in the way that suits them best. Mm-hmm. Cultural competence is such a big thing when it, when it comes to medical communication. Definitely. How can we communicate that to communities in, the, in a way that suits them? It's not just about giving people medical jargon. It's about giving people the information that they need in a way that they can receive it. So we want to make sure that people are as best informed as they can be, that they know how to advocate for themselves in the clinic so that they don't go undiagnosed for a longer period of time and they understand what a clinical trial is and maybe why they want to or don't want to be involved. But we have this slogan that, An informed community is an empowered community and we want to inform the community so that they're empowered about their healthcare decisions. Yeah. I'm honestly in awe of like you and the work you're doing. I think all of that is so needed. It's so necessary and it's great to hear. Oh, thank you. You're out doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So what's the impact of black and cancer been on you and your PhD? I mean, I can think of a certain little something. So kind of crazy. I never thought it would get to the point at which it has when Henry and I first DM'd each other on Twitter last year. But yeah, I mean, I just, I think a month ago now was honoured as one of Forbes 30 under 30 in Europe. Which is just insane. So great. Um, So great to see. Still can't believe it at this point, if I'm going to be honest (laughs) with you. So there's there's that. There's also just people understanding what it's like to be, or at least giving across my perspective of what it's like to be a black cancer researcher in an environment that doesn't reflect you. Mm-hmm. And people under, starting to understand the importance of visibility And just genuinely starting to realise, like, actually, you're right. You don't have a black PI in your building. You Mm -hmm. haven't met a black cancer PI in your time during your 
during either during your PhD or during your, my time in industry or during my undergrad and people starting to realize the impact that that has and trying to think about ways that they can actively make a change which mm. is just it's really enlightening to see and I suppose it's been about main, maintenance of the movement we didn't want it to just be a one-time thing oh we had black and cancer week and yeah. now things died off and we're not really doing anything we wanted to make sure that this was maintained that people continued the conversation and we've had loads of support from like scientific journals you know mm -hmm. we have a nature community blog page that if anybody is a black cancer researcher and, and has some research that or something that they want to talk about then please send me a DM or the Black and Cancer a DM or an email because we want to make sure that the research is out there and it's seen and it's heard. Mm. So, yeah, it's had so many impacts. I mean, it's also, you know, taken a lot of time and a lot of yeah. effort. But thankfully, my PhD is going semi-smoothly at the moment. <laughs> so it's been okay to kind of manage both. I'm sure people in my personal life would say otherwise and be like, you're always busy. <laughs> But I'm just, when they're your two passion projects, you just can't help but to kind of really try and keep the momentum. And yeah. I work with the most incredible Black and Cancer committee who all work so hard. So I'm incredibly proud of them, proud to be in an organization with them and for them to be the future leaders of Black Cancer Research. So, yeah. All right. And I've just got one final question. I mean, I think you've given loads of advice, but what is one piece of advice you would give to other black people considering pursuing a PhD? Oh, that's hard to give just one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, if there's anything from my story, it would be perseverance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be if it's what you want to do and you know it's what you want to do. Don't give up. Mm hmm you may require more experience than other people to push forward the point that you are worthy of the PhD or whatever, but keep pushing. If it's what you want to do and it's your dream, you will get there. So reach out for support in mm -hmm. any way that you can, whether that's people looking over your CV or looking over your cover letter or your application usually actually there are a whole bunch of people in your field who were hidden find them in some way whether that's twitter whether that's instagram whatever it is find them reach out to them they're usually more than willing to help because we want the door open we don't want to be the only ones we want to bring more people with us so exactly just reach out to people if you're struggling if there's you know if you're not successful keep going but also find the support that helps you to get there you know mm -hmm. the networking all of that always helps and don't get downhearted if you do get rejected just try to not think of it as a personal reflection on you mm -hmm. it's just what they've seen on paper and what they've seen in maybe 20 minutes asking you some questions exactly that doesn't yeah. mean that they know you and they're not rejecting you as a person just they have an idea of what their fit is and mm -hmm. maybe you haven't demonstrated that to them, but there will be a project that works for you. So keep persevering. And it doesn't matter at which point in life you do your PhD. If it's what you want to do, you'll get there. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Sigourney, for joining me today and for sharing all of that. I'm honestly 
blown away by it all. It was my pleasure. It was on- it's, honestly, it's such a pleasure to be on this podcast. So thank you. It was amazing to be able to talk to Sigourney about her PhD journey and the Black and Cancer Initiative. And it is so inspiring to see someone who looks like me in Forbes 30 Under 30. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about this episode and the Black and X movement more generally. As always, you can tag social media comments with the hashtag BlackFutureDoctor and please leave a review if you've enjoyed this episode. I'll see you all again next week.